Hello, hello, and welcome to Art House Garage, the snob-free film podcast where we make art house, indie, classic, and foreign cinema accessible to the masses. I'm your host, Andrew Sweatman, and today we're continuing our series on the French New Wave. Guest Omaya Jones is back again, this time to help us understand a group of filmmakers known as The Left Bank, and we'll also talk about the short film La Jatée before we discuss Agnes Varda and her film One Sings, The Other Doesn't. Stick around. Really quick plug for our Patreon. If you love Arthouse Garage and want even more, you can subscribe to our Patreon today. In addition to supporting the show financially, you also get bonus episodes, uncut episodes, video episodes, and ad-free episodes. The most recent bonus episode with Russell Miller is a little spoiler talk about Thor Love and Thunder. So if you loved that movie or hated that movie and want to hear what we have to say, uh, check out the Patreon for that coming very soon. We've also got merchandise discounts, video interviews, some great stuff there. So go to patreon.com slash arthousegarage or find a link in the show notes. Okay, back to the show. Welcome to Art House Garage. I've really been enjoying this series and I've learned so much about the French New Wave in just a few weeks. That's thanks in large part to our guest for this series, Omaya Jones. If you haven't heard of Omaya before, he programs the Arkansas Times film series, which is finally coming back after shutting down for the pandemic. And Omaya is also a film podcaster and just a great lover of cinema. This time we are looking at The Left Bank, which is a group of French filmmakers working at this time who are a bit different than the core group we think of from the French New Wave. More details on that in just a minute. One of the most prominent filmmakers from this group is Agnes Varda. We talk all about Varda and her legacy before discussing her 1976 film called One Sings, The Other Doesn't. Before that, we also talk about the filmmaker Chris Marker and his acclaimed short, La Jatée. So, without further ado, here is episode three of our French New Wave series with Omaya Jones. Welcome back to the podcast, Omaya Jones. Thank you once again for being back here to talk about some French cinema. Uh, speaking of other cinema things, we're planning to see some some We're Ethical this, if I'm pronouncing that right, this coming week uh, with the Arkansas Times. Well, tell us about, again, about the Arkansas Times and when that is and everything. Right. So uh, this week, August, the week of the 23rd of August in 2022, will mark the return of the Arkansas Times film series, which is a film series that's curated by me and a group of people that I that I get to help me. And so we're starting out this week with a screening of uncle Boomy, who can recall his past lives, which we discussed in this podcast. I think it was 2020 
the first yeah, pandemic so. year. Yeah, and our first and, episode ever that we did together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the reason we're doing that is because it's to celebrate the fact that Memoria is supposed to be coming here starting the 26th, which I believe is Friday. Yes, that is correct. Yes. That is my birthday, in fact. Ah. Um, but I, and I was trying to remember, I was texting you about, isn't it here for a week? I couldn't remember why I thought that because I couldn't find that anywhere. Neon did say that, I think originally that it's going to be uh, going like one week traveling exhibitions. Yeah. Right. And then, then I saw that the, the theater. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah, and <laughs> Riverdale updated their event to show us from the 26th to the September the 8th, which I think is actually a little more than a week, but that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we can go more and, than once. You know, I, I remember, I think it was around the time that Neon announced this strategy. There was some talk on Twitter just about um, the ableist. Um, how, how do I want? How do yeah. I yeah. That it? kind of ableism of, of the theatrical attribution. Yeah. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. Accessibility. And which I think is a fair critique. And, and I, and I, I'm sort of soured on this release strategy. If I'm being honest, mm-hmm. I think it's good that it, it is, that we are able to see it in theaters, but I think it should be easier for people to access on home video in North America at yeah. some point. Um, I mean, just a peek behind the curtain for listeners. I plan on seeing this in theaters more than once. However, uh, in Europe, there is a, a hard disc release and I did mm. import the Blu-ray because I have a region free Blu-ray player. So, yeah, mm. I think a lot of Blu-rays are region free anyway, but so I think, I don't know. Yeah. I, like I, I, I am sympathetic to the concern that theaters have about the decline of theater goers and theatrical uh, exhibition, but Mm -hmm. I don't think that art house cinema will, will save mainstream theaters, right? Like when you, when you look at what they're complaining about, it's like the lack of temple films between now and black Panther two. Yeah. Memoria is not, not, not going to yeah. save the world, <laughs> especially not, not one theater at a time. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. Uh, and yeah, I remember you, I think you sent me an article about that when it was announced, but yeah, that is, that's definitely a concern because yeah, I mean, it's just not accessible to people. Hmm. Um, separately, just a thing that we talked about before with we're ethical is, and this is kind of a totally separate thing, but, um, his relationship with sleep and, and how he's mm-hmm. really interested in kind of exploring that. And he's even said, and, in, in like he did a, a long film project that was made to be slept in. And right. Then, it was like uh, a 120 hour yeah. video. Yeah. And there was like an installation in like a hotel where you go rest and watch and sleep through it. And, um, and he said that he's okay with you falling asleep in his films. I was listening to the film comment podcast and they had a sort of a, it was an in-person event, but they are just pulling sections of it and putting it on the podcast. It's called the future of attention. And they did a mm-hmm. 24 hour, basically like a 24 hour Ted talk kind of thing where they had different speakers come. Um, and you know, you're encouraged to come if you need to take a nap in there, that's fine. But then one of the the first filmmakers they talked to had a similar thought. She actually talked about where ethicals films. And then she, um, I can't remember her name. I could find it out. She did the film drift a few years ago um, and has a new film out. I'll find it in just a moment. Um, but let's see, it's from 2017 drift. Well, I'm going to find it now since I'm talking about it. Cause I'm going to say her name. I'm going to go ahead and listen to this. I've been, I had been holding back because you know, the, before those future of, uh, episodes, they did mm-hmm. 
an episode on the rehearsal and Mm-hmm. I saw that Irma Vep, and since I haven't finished Irma Vep yet, I was trying to to wait, but now I, I think I just go and listen to that order. I want to listen to that too, but I have actually I want to watch the film Irma Vep, and then I want to watch uh-huh. the show and watch the rehearsal before I listen to that. Which so oh, you haven't watched the rehearsal yet? Not yet, but I'm you know really dying to. I think that uh, it's did I tell you my reaction to the first episode of the rehearsal after I saw it? I don't think you did. I was just kind of upset. Because um, <laughs> I wish that I had come up with it. Oh yeah, you did tell me. It's, that. <laughs> such, it's like such a good idea. Um, and then it goes to a place that I definitely even expected. You know, that's when you realize that I never could have come up with it. Mm. Only someone who has gone through a very specific set of circumstances in their life uh, is capable of coming up with something that unique. Mm. Yeah. Well. Back to that. Uh, her name is Helena Whitman, the filmmaker who made Drift. Her new film is called Human Flowers of Flesh. And um, so she was being interviewed and she, she makes very kind of uh, gentle, peaceful kind of films. Um, it's very much about the experience and the sound and everything. Uh, and she takes it as a compliment if you fall asleep in her movie, actually. And she talked about, um, I haven't finished the podcast myself either, but talks about like even when you're asleep in a cinema, you're still taking in the sound. There's actually still light waves hitting your eyelids. Like there's still things happening in your body. And and you, of course you like, you wake up a little and drift off again and you catch little bits and pieces of it. And so that in itself is a, an experience that is unique and that she feels like she wants to help, you know, curate that or, or uh, do that. And I thought that was so interesting. And, and definitely I was thinking about like Memoria and I was thinking about, um, Cemetery of Splendor, and then she talked about him. So she brought that. I was like, oh yeah, there it is. Where's ethical stuff? So yes, that's interesting. Um, I don't have anywhere else to go from there, but I thought you might be curious to hear that podcast yeah. and hear about it. I'm gonna just go ahead and listen to it probably tomorrow. Well, maybe I got a lot to do tomorrow. Our screenings tomorrow. I'm real <laughs> excited about it, and I'm also real yes. sort, of, sort of nervous. But uh, I've looked at some of the tickets. Tickets are selling pretty well, so I need to buy mine. <laughs> I'm definitely planning to come. I should make sure I get a ticket. And then, um, um, yeah, so just, you know, and then we've got two more screenings after this to finish out the year, one in October, one in December. We're showing Julia Doctrinal as Raw from 2016 and then Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence on December 20th, 2022. Yes. I saw those year's those are up on the website <laughs> yeah. too for the the Riverdale site so I can go and link to those too but yeah I'm really excited to watch raw again uh, I've only seen it the once and <laughs> I watched it through my fingers you know it's like it's that kind of a uh, you know body horror of all the kinds of horror is like the hardest for me to stomach but also the the kind of the most drawn mm-hmm. to I think because of that so I really like uh, her films we seen but, fresh I've not. I've heard really good things. I think I should watch it. I kind of. I think I've tried not to hear the premise, but I kind of know a little bit. But yeah. Anyway. Okay. Um, and then we talked about the other film last time. I think uh, that's playing December. That sounds really fascinating as well. What's it called again? Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Yes. 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 Yeah. So Arkansas Times, we got some art house things coming to the Riverdale here in Little Rock. Make sure to support that. Um, well, before we get into today's film and, and topic, I wanted to a sort of a refresh from last time. We talked a lot about auteur theory, and I've been kind of thinking more about that. And, and uh, we talked, you know, a little bit about like Martin Scorsese's comments about 
Marvel and, and that kind of thing and how that kind of weirdly fits in with the discussion of, um, you know, in that case, the auteur is it's kind of like in the old studio system where you had the producers were more the auteur versus the director then becoming the creative force um, as a writer, director and different things later. You sent me a tweet, actually, that was interesting. Someone had said uh, someone had tweeted something about Tom Cruise has his own his own personal auteur who helps him, uh, you know, make these Mission Impossible movies and things. And you said, well, the problem is actually Tom Cruise is the auteur there. That's the, that's the only problem with that thing. So it, it doesn't. It, so the, the idea that auteur is synonymous with writer director is that's maybe a fallacy um, looking at it through that kind of a lens. But the thing that I really like, so I was watching a film called Vengeance, which is BJ Novak is his mm-hmm. newest film. I didn't love it totally. Actually, some things about it I thought were great and others not so great. But the point is that there's one scene where there's a character talking about kind of our relationship with art and how it's changed. And I thought it was really interesting. And I wrote down a quote to, to read here. It um, He's talking about music, actually, but I thought it really applied and, and kind of went along with some of the auteur theory stuff. So he's kind of decrying, you know, the streaming service world, which actually I just remembered, oh my, you don't do music streaming, right? Is that still the case? Correct. I do not. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I still buy CDs. <laughs> there you go. Um, so it's actually Ashton Kutcher in the film, which is so interesting. He's a, a really great kind of serious performance in this. It's like a neo-noir film but it's also kind of mixed with sort of an indie dramedy and that part of it didn't work as well. But anyway, he's talking about music and art and he says, um, he, he says to BJ Novak's character, you're, you're probably a playlist guy, aren't you? And he says, what do you mean? He says, some computer recommends you a bunch of songs based on your favorites. You're listening to a bunch of songs that you genuinely like, but you have no idea who sings it. Uh, and he says, it's like the dating apps of music. And then he says, you're not hearing other people's voices. You're just hearing your voice get played back at you. And then he says, how are you supposed to fall in love? Uh, that was a really good line. And then he says, art used to be in charge of us. You used to buy a whole album, not even knowing what songs would be on it. Now we have everything on demand at your fingertips in pieces. We could build that back again if we you know, record real people. And, and so he's, he's a record producer, actually. And so he's trying to get back to the idea of getting genuine voices out there and, you know, selling an, an album. Um, so that's basically the whole thing. But it, I thought that went along so well with O'Tour theory and saying like, okay, maybe this, this director's, you know, fourth film isn't my favorite, but it's still like their film. And I'm going to, I'm curious about their voice over the years versus um, what's the latest, you know, exciting movie and, and rating something five stars or one star. And this movie's good. This movie's bad. It's more about, a connection with an artist, uh, right. whether that's a writer director or whether that's Tom Cruise building a film around set pieces, action set pieces, or Kevin Feige building <laughs> the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, yeah, like it's, it's kind of like find the the voices that you appreciate and stick with them. And, and I thought that was a cool, just like the idea that art used to be in charge of us. And, and I thought that was a, an interesting way to put it. So anyway, that all kind of came together for me this week. Yeah, I'm gonna have to check out Vengeance. I, I I've seen some press about it, but I hadn't. Is it playing here? It played for a bit. I think it's on VOD now. Okay. Um, there was a there was actually if I follow the Focus Features um, email list, and they this is the first time they've done this, but I think they're gonna maybe do it more. It was like it was about to go to VOD, and they were like, "Here's a free screening for our Focus Insiders," and you like grabbed your ticket. So I watched it at home for free, but like mm-hmm. it wasn't a film critic screening; it anyone could have done it. So that was kind of cool. Um, 
but yeah, ended up being very mixed. I, actually, I wrote a letterbox review. Like it was frustrating. <laughs> actually, I, and this is not the point of the podcast right now, but it was like the heights of it were so good. And then there was some of it was so cliche and kind of fell into um, just like, it was just disappointingly couldn't, couldn't all stay at that level. Anyway, yeah. it was really interesting. BJ Novak wrote and directed very much the auteur behind it. And so you can, I think, you know, he's playing with that idea too, as his own, um, kind of uh creative voice that he's and he talks about the idea of finding your voice in the film or other characters do that's kind of a theme of it as well so anyway very interesting film um so i i sort of halfway recommend it but i think uh i think it's pretty pretty good i'll probably check it out yeah and you know in the spirit of what i just said uh i'm not gonna obsessive over whether it's good or bad but it's an interesting voice <laughs> and then that's right. I, I definitely am like okay what's he going to do next and and you know it feels like there's a lot of potential there well you know michael shared a tweet with me um yesterday and it was just it was like a meme you know it's like someone trying to go viral but it, it was like yeah, yeah. why is it that 3.9 films on, on letterbox always slap um <laughs> and then like coincidentally i had read i think earlier that same day because this, this all happened yesterday but it was like it was a piece that I think that I read before that was a critique of Rotten Tomatoes as, as an entity. Mm-hmm. And the idea is just that, like, if you use something, a service like Rotten Tomatoes as a recommendation engine and all you're going to watch are things that are highly rated, then what you're going to get mm-hmm. is like a bland consensus. And mm-hmm. interesting films are sort of in the middle, right? Like they might score between yeah. 40 and 60 percent on a Rotten Tomatoes or they might mm-hmm. be between a 3.0 and a, and a 3.9 a letter box. But what makes them interesting is that they're divisive and that there's some common, uh, or there's, mm-hmm. there's some sort of commentary or di- dialogue that's being having between people about the merit of the film. And so if all you're watching is the stuff that's rated like 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, you're mm-hmm. going to get a lot of just like crowd pleasing easy when there's nothing wrong with that stuff yeah. in and of itself. But I think it's good to diversify your, cinema diet yeah it's i mean it's kind of like the equivalent of your spotify playlist okay i mm-hmm. like stuff that kind of is like this and and like it like in that movie quote i just said like you don't even know who's singing this and it's just like it's your own voice uh put it back to you in a way yeah. um anyway uh, yeah yeah i, I mean i also was, i guess i would say that like um i'm conscious of the fact that not everybody watches hundreds of movies a year yeah. Like there, there are lots of people that might watch two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like, I, I am sympathetic to that desire to like, not want to waste your time. If you're, you know, if you're only yeah. going to watch like a handful of movies a year, then you, you don't want to waste it on something that is not very good. So I'm sympathetic to that view. Um, yeah. so yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's like, so like my wife, for instance, probably watches like 10 movies a year or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I watched, you know, hundreds. Um, and so for me, it's always like, okay, I'm going to try to recommend something that you're really going to like. And it's, you know, interesting. Right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my challenge as a husband <laughs> to yeah. do that. And I don't always succeed, but anyway, well, very interesting stuff. Let's get into today's topic. So we're going to talk about a short film and a feature. But first, we're going to hit the history book a little bit more and talk about the left bank. So um, this is like a sort of a subgroup of filmmakers in a way that's from a different part of Paris, right? Um, or from a specific part of Paris. And they, they're they sometimes lumped together as sort of their own mini movement within the French New Wave. 
Is that true? Right. Yeah. So the left bank is, well, I guess there's some dispute over as to why they're named that and who named them mm-hmm. that, but they are distinct in that they were not from a film criticism circle. They were mm-hmm. a group of people who were often artists working in some form before they got into cinema. So like, we're going to talk mm-hmm. about Chris Marker and he's an essayist, a writer, a photographer, Agnes Varda is a photographer. Um, and they were doing this before they got into making feature films. And I also, I also like they're, they're a little older, often case like Chris Marker was born in 1921 or thereabouts. Um, I think Varda is a little younger than that. And then Jacques to me is probably around the same age as Godard, but they're just more experienced. I think they're more politically active. They're more. Mm-hmm um inspired not they're not they're not cinephiles in the same way that the mm-hmm, KD mm-hmm. cinema crew are and so they're just coming from a different just a very different point of view and mindset mm-hmm. they're inspired mm-hmm. by like literature and novels and things and so the techniques that they use i think uh, are more geared towards that that's very interesting to to hear all that i mean i can tell you the two things that we're talking about today have been by far my two favorite things that we've watched as part of this series. So maybe, maybe I need to dig into the left bank as my, you know, well of what I will really enjoy. I mean, I've liked everything, but um, yeah, I really connected with both of these things. So who are some of the significant filmmakers? You mentioned Chris Marker, Agnes Varda, mm-hmm. uh, Jacques Demy, any other big right. names? Uh, Alain Renez. Uh, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, sure, but if you've, if you've ever seen like Hiroshima Monomore, and last year at Marion Bad, which I think of as being like the quintessential black and white art film. Mm-hmm. Like if, if you've ever saw like a parody of an art film from like the nineties or the eight from the eighties or nineties, it was probably mm-hmm. in some capacity based on last year at Marion Bad, which is this deliberately obtuse and impenetrable film. Like, <laughs> like there is no way to make any literal sense of it because he deliberately does not give you the tools to do so within the film. Mm-hmm. And, and it is an amazing film. It is, it is a confounding watch, but it is also really rewarding. Hmm. Um, I have, so one of the, one of the primary sources for a lot of this information is there's like a, a fantastically run site just called, I think it's like French new wave.com. And they had a write up the left bank and it says the left bank group are one of the most unjustly overlooked groups in the history of European cinema. Perhaps this is due to the fact that the film tended to be politically, aesthetically and intellectually demanding. Perhaps it is because they have been seen unjustly as being a highly literary as opposed to cinematic group, or perhaps mm-hmm. it's simply because their existence as French filmmakers in the late 1950s and early 1960s was chronologically concurrent with, and thus overshadowed by the most famous of all movements or move or moments in the past mm-hmm. 50 years of cinema, the French new wave, whatever the reason it remains the case that although innumerable books have been written about the French new wave, there is no, there are no volumes in English at all dedicated to the left bank group. Nevertheless, the group has been discussed since the 1960s when the left bank term was first used to describe their work. And then he goes on to clarify that, uh, yes, there are individual books and works and there's research about individual filmmakers, but there's no, mm-hmm. there's no literature about them as a group. Um, and then he goes on to say, it is still not universally accepted that the left bank directors actually constitute a coherent group. Monaco says that dis- that distinction between the left bank and the right bank Kaye group 
quote, melts under scrutiny. Smith claims that the group, um, group Rivgauch, well, it's like the French translation of, uh, of sure, left yeah. bank, which I just butchered, but never formed any, it says the left bank never formed anything like a coherent group based on KA. And Varda maintains that there is never anything more shared by the group than friendly conversation and a love of cats. However, <laughs> I think that the discussion above suggests that this is not the case. What is really at issue is whether the left bank group is merely a subgroup of the French new wave or whether it could be considered a group in its own right, which can be thought about not simply um, by its otherness to the Nouvelle Vogue. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I'll definitely link to that that you're reading for anyone who wants to go check that out because I want to. But yeah, so I guess there's debate then whether it's yeah a subgroup or its own thing that's just being overshadowed by this, you know, one of the biggest movements in history. But yeah, it's that is really interesting. But it, happening primarily in france so it's also muddied but by the fact that it's yeah is it connected because of that so yeah very interesting um anything else we need to kind of talk about as far as overview before we get into looking at chris marker um i think that was a pretty good summary yeah yeah Yeah. let's talk about chris marker so you mentioned he's you know not primarily a filmmaker at first photographer essayist um what's what's his story uh, his story, he is a man of mystery. He like, I, I guess like what is known is that he, he fought uh, in the resistance during the war. Like I say, he was a little older than, than the other people. So like, whereas, uh, Godard and Truffaut may have been in their early teens during World War II. Uh, mm-hmm. Chris Marker was in his twenties, probably through, through a period of time. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, like he late teens, early twenties. Mm-hmm. Well, he, he was born on July 29th and he died on July 29th, but in 2012, 91 years later. Wow. Um, you know, we didn't do a What have you been watching lately segment? This is, you can cut this if you want. Okay. I just finished <laughs> the John Adams series on HBO. Oh, yeah. And I don't, yeah. And you know, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson died on the same day, July 4th. 1826, 50 years to the day after the signing of the, of the Declaration of Independence. Really makes you think. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's, uh, that's what uh, John yeah. Adams' son, John Quincy Adams, who was president at the time, I think said about mm-hmm. the, the fortuitous nature of that. Um, that is interesting. I've watched the first yeah. two episodes of that, I think, and really liked it and never yeah. got back to it. But anyway. So feel on. free to cut the John Adams talk. But uh, Chris Marker, <laughs> no, this is... This is from, I believe, I'll double check, but I believe this is from Chris Marker's site. Um, it says, every study and biography of French film essayists and directors agrees on one specific point. Chris Marker is a mystery. Born Christian uh, Hippolyte Francois Georges Bouche Villeneuve in 1921, he filmed, translated, and published under 20 different pseudonyms, among, them, among which Chris Marker is the most famous one. He was a secretive about his personal life and avoided public appearances as much as he could. And he even, um, there's a, on Vimeo, there's a nine, 10 minute documentary that Agnes Varda made about Chris Marker. And there's a, oh, wow. there, you never see his face. There are, there are a couple of photographs of him on the online that you can find, but you never see his face in this documentary. And oftentimes um, he would use online this cat character that, I don't know if he drew it or not, but there's even a scene they're walking down the street and he has, um, 
are those? Like like a furniture lift, uh, a dolly, a dolly. I couldn't think of. Okay, yeah, yeah. He has a dolly with a giant like cardboard cutout of this cat character just walking it in front of him, so that you can see his visage. <laughs> see him on the. Uh, wow, I just found the link to that. That's not in the Varda set, is it? Do you think? I don't know. Um, I don't know if it's in the Varda set. There's a bunch of different not. shorts in there. Mm-hmm. I guess I could check. I've got it right here. No, Agnes Varda set. Um, it may be it's from later they're both you know as from when they're both older uh i think it's like 2009 mm-hmm. or something like that and i found the the link on vimeo so i'll share that on the, the show notes i also I, I read somewhere um that logite is chris marker's only fiction film hmm. okay uh, so he did a lot of documentaries but then even into the 90s, he was doing a lot of experimentation with different things. He had a CD-ROM called In Memory that I would love to get a hold of, but I don't know if any uh, modern-day technology would be able to play it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, but I think, actually, I think That's it was online at one point. And, you know, he played a lot with the idea of memory. And Legite mm-hmm. is about that. Um, yeah. That seems to be like a recurring theme in the French New Wave group that talked about memory. Um, last year, last year, Marion Bad is something about memory, mm-hmm. and Chris Marker apparently was very inspired by Vertigo, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. So mm-hmm. there's Hitchcock again, which yeah. is also about memory or sort of trying to recreate something. Yeah, well, yeah. Let's talk about La Jete then, because I, I definitely was like, okay, and see, so many things that were inspired by this. I mean, I thought about like uh, Chris Nolan's Tenant from last mm-hmm. year as is very similar like thematically i mean there's a lot of like romantic comedies with similar premise with time travel kind of stuff happening think about like the time traveler's wife and like different things like that um so you can see like this idea has become prevalent but the way it's told here and like the yeah it's very mysterious um it's interesting to hear that about chris marker but um yeah so basically the premise so and i'll reiterate again that Amaya Jones told me this is the greatest short film ever made. And did you agree with that? I don't, I don't know. I have to chew on that, but <laughs> I, I was telling <laughs> telling Amaya before we started recording about five or six minutes in, I was like, I don't know about the greatest ever. I don't know. But then it really, uh, I, I, I underestimated it. It was really, really good. <laughs> um, but like the, it's got a really, but kind of bizarre premise. Um, Let's talk about the premise and then we can talk about the style of it because that's a big part of it too. But, and so correct me if I'm wrong in all of this, but so it's World War Three is about to happen or it's already happened or it's like during that one of those two. And it's already happened. So it's already there's, happened. There's so some, some like, big event has happened. Paris is like mostly destroyed, right? We kind of see some mm-hmm. images of that sort of thing and everyone's underground. And basically the... Um, the, the Parisians are being used as guinea pigs in scientific experiments. And so our lead character is being used. He gets taken in and he doesn't know what it's for. It turns out it's time travel. They're testing out time travel things and he's sent back and it's just kind of pops into this woman's life over and over. Um, as he, every time he's sent back. And I, I mean, I guess that's kind of the, the basic premise. There's more to it. And like the end, it has a great ending. I don't necessarily want to spoil that. Um, but yeah, I think is that a good enough explanation? I feel like I would. Yeah, and, and so and the reason that the experiment works with him is that 
he has a specific memory that he can hold on to and sort of he's trying to get back to that memory and then at one point he goes to the future he goes to the past i think it's important to remember that this is like of course marker lived through the second world war and saw the destruction Mm -hmm. Of your yeah, when you said that he was in the war, that was like, oh, well, yeah, it makes total sense that this is like a wartime mm-hmm. film. I think all of that informs the film. And then, of course, it's told with these still images and a voiceover. Did you watch it in English or in French? I watched it in English. I, I started watching the YouTube link, and actually the subtitles seem like we're off on that link. So if anyone mm-hmm. listening clicked on the YouTube link that I provided, I'm sorry if that was a bad experience. But I ended up watching it on Criterion Channel, and just I clicked it, and it went to English. I think they have the French version on there as well. Yes, they do. The, the, the On the Criterion Channel, the English is the default. And I don't think I'd yeah. ever seen it in English before, but I, you know, with a film like this that's told all in still photographs, I don't, I think it's fine. You know, because yeah. it's just the narrator talking, and I think it works. Yeah, there's some. So the sound design is so interesting, and there's like this whispering, and that seems to be in French or maybe in German. Yes. And I wondered, like, if I had subtitles, would I be getting that translation too? I don't know, um, because uh, you know, just he was hearing the English voiceover, and and it just kind of that was almost ambient noise. But yeah, all in still photographs, as you mentioned, which so you said that he was a photographer. I did not know that either, but it's such an interesting um, just way to experience a film. And of course, there there's one key moment where it, it breaks that form. Like you're, you're very used to at this point, everything is just a still image. And then there's a, there's some movement at one moment. And then as there's also a moment, and I won't spoil it, near the end where things kind of ramp up and you get more cut, cut, cut. Cause it's, you know, we get a, mm-hmm. an image every five seconds or something. And then there's a moment when they're going really quickly. Um, and it, it really, after you get used to that, then the experience of that is like your heart starts racing. And it's like, it, it, it it's an action scene in a sense, um, in the middle of this, right. this thing. And even though there are still images, he's still sort of controlling the pace or the flow of the information mm-hmm. because the camera will like pan from one point in the photograph to another, um, and you know there's lots of foot you know it's like it's changing often enough that um it's very composed yeah mm-hmm. very very intentionally and and yeah controlled as you said it's yeah i really thought it was incredibly done yeah the you kind of it takes a moment to kind of understand okay this is how this film is going to be like this is the style of this but then once you kind of fall into that it i i think it's actually a really great way to kind of disarm you as a viewer mm-hmm. and kind of what we're talking about with our tour theory, like try to come out, come in without preconceived notions and just kind of engage with what's here. Don't. And that's, that's, I think that's the thing. So the whole tour theory conversation also connects with the whole, something I used to talk about in the podcast is like movie reviews are overrated, which is probably too ham handed of a way of saying what I'm trying to say, which is that, uh, whether a movie is good or bad is not the most interesting conversation. And, and I think O2 Theory perfectly fits in with that. And, and I, in a way, I didn't even realize until like this week. But, um, but yeah, so it's instead of judging something's quality, engage with what's there. And I think having a anything that has a, a style that's very unusual kind of forces you into that mindset a little bit more. So anyway, 
Um, I like that about the film as well. Anyone I haven't seen, I actually, I Googled greatest short film of all time, and this is definitely on <laughs> all the lists. It's not always number one. Mm. Um, I haven't seen Meshes in the Afternoon yet, but I'd be curious to I see how that. Either. Yeah. I have not either. Yeah. Um, now I you need have... to see 12 Monkeys. Yeah. So you mentioned like 12 Monkeys is basically, he actually co-wrote it, right? I saw that he has a writing credit on it. Or maybe I mean, it's just, you know, I, it's, it's adapted from, so. Work. Okay. Because yeah. he was still alive when it came out. Um, but anyway, yeah, so I've never seen 12 Monkeys. But yeah, there there were some other kind of sci-fi movies that are like, okay, they must have been inspired by this too. I'm trying to remember what, as I was watching, I kept thinking of little things. Um, Tenet was the one that popped in first because that's like the most recent film that I've seen that kind of deals with those themes. But yeah, the whole, and oh, I thought about Arrival as well. Hmm. Um, you know, with moving forward, moving back um, and not always being sure you know, which direction a memory's from that kind of thing. Um, anyway. Yeah. I'll yeah, say like I really one like last it. thing I would say about Legite, it's just, I love the idea of just being able to express, your, express yourself creatively when you don't have a ton of resources. Right. Yeah. And I think this is just an exercise and sort of like, how can you be creative with very little, all you need is mm-hmm. a camera. Um, I'm sure back then he had a, a access to a dark room. Um, and then a microphone for the voiceover. And so, yeah, I think a lot of people could learn from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And create something that's so, so interesting. So like thrilling at moments, such a kind of mind bending little piece that, yeah, it's really impressively creative. Um, yeah, you're right with with very minimal, uh, minimalistic style and, and minimal resources. Yeah. That's La Jete. Check it out on Criterion Channel or on YouTube um, in English or French. There you go. Yeah, I I mean, I guess I can't answer anything else is the greatest short film of all time, so I have to just agree with you by default. I'll do some research and see if there's anything else I've seen that I think would compare, but I did think it was very, very excellent. So thank you for the recommendation. Yay. Well, now let's talk about one of the other uh, most prominent names from the left bank, which is Agnes Varda. Um, she is someone that I kind of became aware of actually because she had a, it was like one of, one of her last films came out and she was still alive then. And she was on a podcast or something. I was like, who is this? And then learned that she's a really big deal. And, uh, I think it was the one she made, um, faces places with the photographer, JR, which I actually still haven't watched. That's also in the Varda set. So I can watch it anytime. But, um, kind of that was my way into learning about her but yeah tell us uh an overview of agnes varda uh well varda was also has a background in photography and she had this really interesting career in that she would make these narrative features and then make documentaries sort of in between mm. and when you get to the like the her 2000 she was always just reinventing herself and so when you get to like what you were just talking about with like Faces Places and then before that, The Gleaners and I, is I think those films are really reflective, uh, ref- like her reflecting back on her her past history. Mm-hmm. She talks a lot about Jacques Demy in those, who was her husband who died in the 1980s. And she was also just like really creative and I think sort of like the left bank as a whole maybe is like more, well, not her in particular is like very humanist. You know, there's lots of emotion mm-hmm. in those films. And I think she's like a good counterbalance or a counterweight to the almost over intellectualization of like a Godard. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I like that. That makes a lot of sense to me. And, and yeah, I like that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So like looking through the, her filmography, there's yeah, there's narrative films, there's documentaries, there's like documentaries about the Black Panthers, and then there's mm-hmm. short films about like her cat, and <laughs> there's all kinds of different things. And then yeah, and I, so I listened. The other yeah, that's the other thing I remembered after I kind of learned who she was. A podcast I really like called Film Spotting did a series about her, and they just I didn't watch any of the film. I think I watched her first film, La Pointe Court, at that time, and I didn't watch any any other things that they discussed. But I listened to it all, and they talked about the Gleaners and I, and talked about Cleo from Five to Seven, which is another one that I've seen a couple times from her. Um, yeah, and just seeing how she changed over the years, and and then I think when she started using digital film, she like had like little think pieces about digital versus analog. And so you get just really interested in the creative process. Um, so yeah, I've done an episode on the show too, about the film Vagabond. Uh, that was like three years ago, I think um, with uh, Andrew Camarillo, a good friend of mine who loves art house things. And uh, so we, I've talked about that one on the show. I'm trying to think what else I've seen by her. I meant to look at that. So Vagabond, one thing's the other doesn't now. Um, La Point Court and, uh, Cleo from seen seven. I've not seen Le Bonaire. I'm looking at the list now. That may be it. Those four or five that I just listed. Um, yeah, I've got the set. So it's, it's one of those, like, I'm going to work through these over time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm really glad to knock another one off the, the watch list today with, with one sings the other doesn't, because I really, really like this film a lot. Um, yeah, I think that must be it. I'm looking back at the list. I think I've watched a couple of the shorts that are on the, the discs as well. But anyway. Yeah. I would say like yeah. Varda of the directors that we're talking about, Varda is the only one who has a film that we've actually screened. Uh, and it was Cleo mm-hmm. from five to seven. I think, mm-hmm. I think it was the first year that I was programming. And now I'm sort of like looking at 2023 and trying to think of like, what would be good to show and, her mm-hmm. she's back at the top of the list of just things that might be interesting and i don't know if it'll yeah, be well, well now it might be this but i'm leaning more towards like the cleaners and i or faces mm-hmm. places or something like that yeah but she's like it's like the, the thing about oh go ahead and i was going to kind of just give it a little aside i'll say it really briefly just that so criterion came up with this varda set that she helped curate before her death um and it has i think her entire collected works with maybe the exception of that Chris Marker documentary, but it's, it's really cool because it's kind of um, put together like a little film festival, like thematically each disc, it jumps all over her filmography, but they're sort of um, thematically together. So this, the disc that this is on has some other sort of feminist films uh, along with it. But yeah, what were you going to say? Um, I was going to say that. I made you lose your train of thought. Oh no. <laughs> uh, it's Okay. It's okay. That's all right. Ooh, You'll think of it in a minute. Say. We'll go on and talk about yeah. today's film. Oh, was it was it about the which film you're thinking oh, about I, the screening? I was no, I was going to say that like it's not that that she's not an intellectual, right? Like her films are full of these ideas and exploring these different ideas about mm-hmm. um, gender and society and how to be a human in society, but she's all. I think her films are also like the most accessible of the ones that we've definitely talked to you so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and probably even because what we're doing umbrellas, umbrellas of Schoberg, right. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I yes. think, I mean, that's like a French musical. And I think this is probably more 
yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's easier for someone to like get into yeah. Barda, I think. Yeah, I would say that's probably the case. I mean, that's why I liked it more. But um, I, yeah, this film, it is, it's, um, it, it came out in 74 or 76, one of those two. But this film, one sings, the other doesn't. Yeah, so it follows these two women. Um, and yeah, it's sort of about, this would be like second wave feminism, right? I'm trying to remember the time frames of all the, the waves of feminism. But uh, it's, it's very much an activist film too, which I think a lot of her work probably you could describe that way. Uh, the characters in the film are activists. I know that she was in her life as well. It's like she, this kind of mirrors, you know, she was going to protests and things. Um, but yeah, it follows these two women who, the structure of it's so interesting too. They meet at the beginning, have this this connection, like they, they kind of knew each other from the past and then become very good friends. A tragedy occurs and, and that causes one of them to move away. And then... 10 years later, we zoom 10 years later, they have a chance meeting and then it's told sort of in flashbacks and it kind of goes forward a little bit here and there. And we see what happened in those 10 years, what happened after this point. So the, the timeline structure of it is really interesting. And some of it's like they're writing letters or they're just kind of having an inner monologue about um, kind of, oh, here's what I wish I would have told my friend or here's what I was thinking at this time, which let me pause really briefly there and talk about memory again, because it kind of gets into that idea of memory. One of the brilliant things about La Jete that I forgot to say is that it is so much about memory and he, it, the character in the film, as he's traveling back in time, it describes that he kind of experiences it in images, much like what we're seeing as images in the film. And then at, they're cutting one to the other, but as things go on, they start to dissolve together instead of just cutting. And so some of those dissolves, it feels like, that's kind of how memory works, right? Things are fuzzy and they, uh, you might have little flashes of movement, but mostly you remember kind of images and they dissolve together. So I thought that was a really cool visual representation of that. And that it's sort of a theme here in, in this film as well, just having memories and um, wanting to share those with, with a friend, but yes. So <laughs> that's going back to La Jete briefly, but yeah. So one thing's the other doesn't, the stars of it, I will pull up their names really quickly and I, We'll do my best to pronounce them, but it stars um, Therese Leotard as Suzanne and Valerie Maurice as Pauline. And Pauline later in her life goes by Apple. Um, and there, so what I think it's cool about it is, and this is probably, you know, I don't, I'm not an expert on feminism at the time, but I think um, one of the statements that the film sort of makes is that womanhood can be anything you want it to be um it kind of because these two women are very different and the film makes a point to describe that they're um, from very different backgrounds very different goals in life but they still um by the end of the film they sort of i can't remember exactly how the there's a narrator which i think is varda herself it is varda Mm -hmm. dix ans plus tard suzanne et pauline suivaient de très près le procès d'une jeune fille de 16 ans qui avait avorté beaucoup de celles et de ceux qui luttaient contre la loi punissant l'avortement says something like they both succeeded in their their um kind of their pursuit of womanhood or something along those lines um even though they you know had very very different goals and what they their lives wanted to be you know but yeah what do you think about this film uh so i'll start i'll quote varda um where she said that it's a film about about women and their images society stereotypes and the new images of women are slowly establishing. 
images an image that's important to me not just because i was a photographer uh not just to create pretty things but because image is the very substance of cinema it's the ground the starting point of the viewer dreaming understanding and delight and my own delight too and so she also described the film as this sort of like a, a feminine feminist musical um, mm-hmm. that illustrates the line by Simone de Bouvier, one is not born a woman, but becomes one. And mm-hmm. I think like, if, I don't know. I mentioned before that she's like a counterweight to sort of uh, the over overly intellectual films of like a Godard or something, but also just like the overly masculine nature of mm-hmm. cinema in general, but also mm-hmm. including the, the French new wave. And I think, you know, as, as we're doing this series on the new wave and she's the only woman that's mm-hmm. making any films. Right. Not like in terms of being a director, there are people probably yeah. obviously as, as characters in the films, probably contributing in different capacities as members of the crew, but she's the only woman director that we're talking about. And I, she's the only one who's listed as a part of the French new wave. And even if you were to zoom out at the time, like this is 1976. So there's like Lena Wartmuller. We are decades mm-hmm. removed from um, like the Hollywood women who are working in Hollywood. And so there's a lot on her shoulders in, ter- in terms of just representation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like a lot of this film is sort of rebelling against that. Even thinking about like mm-hmm. the content of the films that we talked about, not just who made them, but like think about like how those films ended. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. like you know, and one a woman gets shot, which is and then the next one she drives is the off killer the bridge. And, yeah. Yeah, murder suicide. Yeah. And so I like yeah, this is like really <laughs> it's like really correcting for like just the skewed nature of how women are perceived. And um, one of the things I was reading is just like, and I think this is really true is like, just because a lot of these filmmakers are doing things creative and progressive in terms of their technique, film technique, mm-hmm. um, they might still be misogynist, and that yeah. that kind of shows up in some of the depictions on on the screen. Yeah, that's super interesting because yeah, it, immediately in this film, it sort of desexualizes the the uh, woman's body, and because we have these images in this um, art gallery that Jerome is the character who's the photographer, and some of them are nudes, and and like there's there's a point actually in which he's shooting uh, photos of her of um, Apple or her Pauline, and the, the the nudity in it is really interesting. It's kind of it's very frank, but yeah, it's yeah, we meet, we have this art gallery, we have all these images of women and um, their mothers and their, it, the, the images feel very, I don't know, almost in a way like that boudoir would be like sort of empowering, not an over-sexualizing of, of the body or something. I may not know what I'm talking about. <laughs> like this may not be make any sense, but that's kind of how I, the sense I had with it. But it's interesting too. She comes into the art gallery because she notices the images. That's how the film starts. Pauline does, and Jerome's there, and he's. She says something about these women all look so sad, and he says, "No, they don't. This is just you know, this is just them in their natural environments." And that I thought that difference was really interesting, and that like he doesn't pick up on. Um, I mean, we find out that his wife is actually 
deeply sad and he doesn't realize it. So that's an interesting thing too. But just like the, the way women are treated in society, which this whole film is kind of about, um, there's, I'm trying to think there's some song lyric about they only like me when I'm sad or something like that. That's that I think is a, a, you know, feminist idea that, um, women are most appreciated when they're, you know, damsels or they're uh sad or, or whatever so anyway i thought that was a cool way to kind of open that up and then um yeah th- there's again there's there's a ton about i mean it feels so timely because there's a ton about reproductive freedom in this film which i i knew that that was an element but i didn't know how big of an element it was like they're at protests um there's a court case that's happening which i assume is a real court case from the it time was, I, don't, I don't know it was a real court case that they reenacted a protest for the film and the mm-hmm. reenactment included an actual lawyer, like the the, the oh, woman wow. who's a the lawyer, lawyer who goes out. and pulls mm-hmm. people. Yeah, uh huh. Like she was actually in that. Uh, and I know, like there was a petition signed by women who had declared that they had had illegal abortions. Uh, mm-hmm. That was signed by a number of women, including Agnes Varda. And mm-hmm. so, like, she just restages this event for the film um, to give wow. you know this air of authenticity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like that's a huge part of it, and. Um, their you know choices of when to have kids is is part of the story as well uh, they both do have children by the end of the film um yeah the, the what you mentioned as like it's sort of a feminist musical too i thought that was interesting because it, i didn't expect the music to be such a big part of it either there, so apple is in a band apple slash pauline mm-hmm. um and she's in this band for a while and, and then leaves it for a while and then comes back to it um but they sing these, I mean, the, the song that they sing a couple of times is like, I am woman, I am me. And it's this very, you know, all of the songs really that they sing are about womanhood, but we get these extended like music video sequences essentially. So it really does feel like a musical in a sense, but it's, of course, it's like diegetic, like they're performing on a stage mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, that was a really cool aspect of it as well. Her whole relationship with Darius, I thought was so interesting. Who's this Iranian man that she meets and, he seems you know he's progressive in his own way she says he's feminist in his own way um but he really wants to go back to his own country of iran again he's like he's very supportive of her you know very feminist art that she's creating and that sort of thing and then when they go back home to iran he sort of falls back into um a more traditional mindset and once she's pregnant then he the way she puts it in her it's either in a letter or it's in her kind of monologue once she's on the hook, then he's kind of back to his, um, the way he was raised maybe, or something that's, that's more traditional. And he wants her to cook. And like back in Paris, he was helping cook all the time. There's like dual scenes of that. And he's like, why aren't you cooking for me? Which is so shocking after we've seen, you know, we know what kind of person she is at this point. And when that happens, it's, um, it's kind of devastating to see that she feels trapped in the situation. But anyway, yeah, but like it's liberating that. to see the way that she gets out of it, right? Like she's able to sort yeah. of write. She like she refuses to be cowed by anybody and, and told what to do. Yeah, yeah. That the way that storyline goes is really interesting. <laughs> the way the way their family ends up is is kind of surprising too. Where they they have two kids and <laughs> she literally says, "Oh, we'll have one one each, and you can go back to Iran and, that, and just give me another baby, so then I have one." <laughs> Which is that that is the most kind of like hard to accept part of the film that felt <laughs> farcical or something. Um, but I, it's also kind of goes along with, um, I think, so I, I skimmed the, the little um, write up in the Varda set about 
this film and the other films in the the disc with it but it it talked about like um unusual family dynamics or something like that mm-hmm. so i think and that we we saw that in jules and jim as well right so that's that apparently kind of a theme that um that family can can be what you want it to be in a way although i don't know that that's meant to be taken you know at face value or seriously in this film maybe it is i'm not sure but um yeah that's an interesting i don't know well, well i i think um Luna Wartmuller made a film that I, th- I think was all screwed up, which is about a group of people in Italy who form like an intentional community. And I know like even today, like I have friends, like it's, it seems like it's a thing that has been, people have talked about in different ways for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, pr- probably the yeah. centuries, just like different modes of living together yeah. uh, and mm-hmm. building um, surrogate families, you know, families of choice which also goes back to like one of the first films we talked about was shoplifters. Right. And these are people who are sort of making mm, a family mm-hmm. that they choose. And so yeah. there's just like exploring different modes of being with other people. Yeah. Uh, and then, and so like in this film, like, you know, Apple's got her, her band that she travels with. She's got um, the one who doesn't sing. <laughs> Suzanne Suzanne yeah she has Suzanne and and like there's almost sort of like a makeshift family that they build there you know they don't always live together she's traveling she's being a free spirit but um, she's living her life in her own way yeah where Suzanne you know has at the beginning of the film has a husband and of course that falls apart um which I, I don't guess we are really averse to spoilers at this point, but he dies by suicide, which is a really, that, that surprised me. And that was like, like a shocking scene. Although like, as it was about to happen, I was like, Oh no, I think I know what's, what's happening here. But that, that was an interesting way to have them go their separate ways. Cause she has to then go back and live with her parents. Suzanne does. And her parents are terrible by the way. Um, but then <laughs> she has two kids already, but then you do have this feeling that she always has kind of longed for a more, I don't know, quote unquote, traditional, like a, a stable married home. Stable is not the right word because, um, but like Pauline wants to continue traveling and being on the road and in the end has a child and still does this and is able to, to make that work. Whereas Suzanne does finally find love and find a, a, a supportive man and, and um you know settles down i guess in a way but she also lives very happily and as a single mother for you know unwed mothers the term they use and then she, the apple meets a, a man who's an unwed father which is a funny kind of turn on that um but but yeah i think both of the storylines are told um with yeah so much humanity like you're saying like we really get to know these characters in a way that that's maybe part of the accessibility too like that felt mm-hmm. more modern in a way than some of the other films we've watched that we kind of get to see these people and and really understand how they're feeling and what their lives are like um yeah so i also i really just love the expert me. use of the voiceover narration i know i think we talked about yeah. last week our last time with jules and jim um and i think we we referenced yeah, like Scorsese's use in like Casino and yeah, Goodfellas, yeah, yeah. but like here again, it's like expert use of just a voiceover, and it's not just one, right? It's more like Casino in that there's like different voices coming in because it's yeah, mm-hmm. it's 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 Apple, it's um, Suzanne, and it's Varda as the the omnipotent narrator, all sort mm-hmm. of mixing together. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I just saw in my my notes too that. Um, one aspect that of the musical quality of it that is 
maybe it's not diegetic in this one scene i just remembered when they're on the boat and it's she's with all the other sort of like i don't know battered women and she sings this song about all the knocked up ladies on the on the boat together And it seems like no one else can hear her, possibly, but it's not really clear. But it's also cut together with other footage of the city and stuff. And they're also driving the boats going underneath. Like she's gone to Amsterdam to get an abortion. It's the situation because she can't in France. And so she's with all these other women who have traveled for the same reason to this to this same place. And she sings this kind of like cutesy, funny little song, but also really moving about these women who are together in this situation but yeah they, they drive underneath the bridges and their faces go to just shadow for a moment and cut back in and, and so it's visually really a cool a cool little piece as well varda is just also that's a real like her her band that she toured with is, was a real band and then varda wrote the lyrics for some of those songs but oh, wow. i just think she's really underrated um as a filmmaker oh it's odd i mean it's not like a criteria but a whole box set but i just think like i wish um Maybe she's not overrated or not. I don't know. I mean, she's she's not not like the, I don't know. The huge, if you look at like, I don't know, ask a random person on the street, what directors they know from, you know, the sixties and seventies, they're not going to say her name probably. So I think you're right. Any names. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they might know like, you know, Alfred Hitchcock or like there's the yeah. huge, huge names, but like maybe she deserves to be up closer to that, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Her films are well, just wonderful. I, I don't know. I just, yeah. I love, I love her film. I love her as a filmmaker. I've, she's, I've not seen anything that she's ever made that was bad. I was going to say, so I've seen like five or six. How many of her films do you think you've seen? Roughly? Uh, counting the shorts, 14. Okay. Um, nice. uh, I just, I just thought about the Chris Marker short. There's a whole section where they go. Chris Marker plays second life. <laughs> so it's like, oh my gosh, that's hilarious! And then there's a little Agnes Barda avatar walking around in second, in like a second life Island or whatever. Oh, wow. That is amazing. I haven't thought about Second Life in a long time. I you just love these people. Like, what would Chris Marker be doing, you know, with the metaverse or with, you know, the things that are he, happening now? I don't know if he would have uh, purchased metaverse property, but I think he'd be there. Yeah, he'd go in there with the, you know, make a metaverse movie. Uh, wow. Um, I'm trying to, I'm looking through to see if there's any other comments about this film that I wanted to, to bring in. But yeah, I really, really liked it. Um, I love the ending. It's got this epilogue that, yeah, as, as it kind of stands in contrast to, yeah, it's not really a spoiler ending. So like I was been like, you know, hesitant. Should we talk about the endings of some of these with the kind of sad endings that they have? But this one, um, it just kind of catches up with it where everyone is. And yeah, it has that, that narration talking about, and, and it really looks forward to the next generation. I really like that too, because uh, it talks about the women that they've become and, and how they've succeeded in being who they want to be. And then um, Suzanne has a daughter named Marie, who we, you know, we've met as a small child at the beginning of the film. And now she's 16 or 17. And um, 
there's a couple of scenes. There's one scene where she's with a boy and, and we see like mom's at home nervous about what she out doing. Um, and then we see Marie kind of taking on her, her mother's feminist values and living them out in a way that I thought that scene was really cool mm-hmm. to see her. Um, like she really has learned from her mother. And then the, the narration at the end sort of points towards the future of like the next generations. Like they've both worked really hard to hopefully make things better. And the quote that I wrote down, so they, they, they both know that it won't necessarily be easier, but perhaps simpler and clearer. I thought that was a really interesting way to put it. Like that activism sometimes is just helping the struggle to be more defined so that then maybe it's a bit easier to, or a bit simpler. Yeah. yeah. To, to do, but yeah, I like that ending a lot. Yeah, I think just where it gets depressing is when you think about this. This is a film that was made in 1976, and you could, yeah. you could you could you could you could make this in a, in America today, yeah, <laughs> and, with no and change, to the nothing. Politics. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, the kids. Yeah. So, like the teenage Mary, Marian, uh, Marie, Marie, uh, Varda's daughter. Oh, really? Wow, yeah, okay. and Zorro is her son. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. So this is the, the unwed father's yeah. child. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. I did not know that. Well, anything else we need to say about one sings the other doesn't, uh, again, really strong movie. I'm so glad I watched it and I'm glad that we had to discuss it. Just that everybody should seek it out. It's, it is a wonderful film and it is, uh, current politics aside, it is a very hopeful film, you know, is it? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. One thing we didn't mention is that Suzanne for a period works for like Planned Parenthood. It's called the family planning, but they capitalize it in the subtitle. So it's like, oh, this is, did she found it? It sounded like it was her organization that she started. I don't know. I would have to oh, watch it. Really like I would have to pay yeah. more attention on the second watch to see if that's the case, but maybe, yeah, maybe that's right. I don't know. Um, but yeah, there's an interesting scene where she, there's a woman there who basically has come there to get the pill and then goes home and it won't take it for her like based on religious reasons. And she's so frustrated and she gets so angry um, at this woman. And then one of her coworkers um, pulls her aside and is like, what's wrong? Like, and she says, we don't yell at people. I'm trying to find the exact quote. Um, I didn't write it down, I guess. Oh no, she, here it is. She says, we don't yell at people. And she says, are you an activist or a bureaucrat? I thought that was a really good way to put that. And it just reminded me of like, so like my wife's a social worker and I've kind of learned about what social workers do and, and just like the, the importance of yeah, humanity in how we treat people, especially people in tough situations, which is exactly who she's dealing with. Um, but then it also is like, that's in a way Varda puts that humanism into her, her films as well. So anyway, maybe that's a good place to, to end talking about this film, but yeah, I really, really like this and it's, um, it's one that I I'm so glad I have the set and it's yeah it's made me want to prioritize uh, watching some more of those pretty soon. But, yeah, maybe yeah. we should do a year long Varda series. <laughs> just do the whole set. Just go, I just would go, love yeah. that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, we can kind of wrap up from there. We have one more episode in this French New Wave series. You know, I said, let's do this for four episodes instead of six. And now I'm like, why did I say that? I don't know. Cause I'm really, really enjoying it. I'd like to do more, but I think it's still good. I have uh, some plans for my next couple series kind of underway. So, but I think, um, yeah, I don't know. I was just nervous that we'll, we'll wear out our welcome with six, but maybe, maybe not. But, um, next time we are going to talk about Jacques Demy, who also part of the left bank, 
as Omaya mentioned, was married to Agnes Varda. And I think she has some films about him too. Uh, I need to look back at the the film list in the set, but I think she has like one or two that maybe they're shorts, but they're sort of like uh, an, uh, maybe it's as for his death, actually, maybe you, you may know the answer to that. That's sort of like about his life or something. Hmm. Um, anyway, we're going to watch his film, uh, Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which is another film that's, it's kind of like one of those, oh, this is one of the big French movies that everyone should see that I've just never seen. So I'm really excited to finally watch that. It is streaming. I'm going to double check where I believe on HBO max, and I will link to that in the show notes. If anyone wants to take a look, but I'm going to double check it really quick. Umbrellas of C H E R B O U R G. Yes, it is on HBO max and criterion channel and canopy. So if you have a library subscription to canopy, which is free, you can watch it there. But I've heard so many good things about it and and sort of the use of color in it. I know it's sort of a touchstone for a lot of modern musicals like um, La La Land. La La Land. Yeah, talking about (laughs) Umbrellas of Shipborg a lot. Um, And yeah, so anyway, excited to get into that. Um, Do we have sort of a side discussion with with this one as well? Oh, we were just going to kind of wrap up and conclusion kind of talk, I think, at the end. So that'll be for next time. But uh, all right. I guess we can wrap it up there. Thank you so much, Omaya, for episode three in the bag and, and such a good discussion about auteurs and left bank filmmakers and, and La Jate. Uh, and we will talk to you next time. Thanks for having me. Huge thanks to Omaya. This series has been so rewarding and I'm really loving these discussions. Next time on the show, I'm not sure just yet what film we'll be talking about, but there will be a show, so stay tuned. And then the week after that, we will finish out the French New Wave with Omaya. And with that, thank you, thank you for listening to Art House Garage. We've got a few years' worth of episodes, and you can hear all of them in your podcast app of choice. Our theme music is by composer Paul Hunefeld. Learn more at appallingproductions.com. If you want to support Art House Garage, become a patron over at patreon.com slash arthousegarage or find a link in the show notes. You can also buy an Art House Garage t-shirt at arthousegarage.com slash shop. If you want to support us without spending any money, leave a rating or review in your podcast app and that is hugely helpful. Stay in the loop about Art House Garage and the films we're covering by subscribing to our email newsletter, that's at arthousegarage.com slash subscribe, or you can email me directly, Andrew, at arthousegarage.com. And of course, follow on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Just search at Arthouse Garage in all those places or find links in the show notes. And that will do it for this episode. Thank you again so much for listening. And until next time, keep it snob free.